Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny podcast. This is your host, uh, Stephen Spector, and with me, as usual, is Rob Hirschfeld. Rob, how are you? I'm doing great, Stephen. Good to be oh. back on the air. Well, you sound good, and I know for our listeners, Rob has this whole new fancy setup, and I will uh, make sure, Rob, we got to get a picture of that out and tweet it out <laughs> so people can see this whole professional setup you have. That's exactly right. Very professional. Very <laughs> that professional things to say, and then we're then we're in business. Well, I think I think my setup is going to be redu- reduced in professionalism, but uh, at least one of us is uh, has a nice setup. Well, we have a, a, a guest coming back on, and we were just looking uh, with Chathan uh, Venkatesh from Macrometa, who's the CEO and founder, and we were just looking that we had done a podcast with him a year ago, and at the time, uh, Chathan, if I remember correctly. Your company really hadn't an announced anything. You were kind of still in stealth. So it is great to have you back and uh, not just talk about what your company is, but you have a release coming up, or I, I should say it will be out by the time this podcast goes live. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Rob. Uh, yes, it's a real pleasure. It's been a year. I can't believe it's already been a year. It feels like a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and boy, it has a lot happened in the last 12 months. I think a year back when we got together and we're talking about the edge, it still felt so cerebral and conceptual. And, and here we are a year later, and there's so many more startups in the space. Uh, there's some really exciting new announcements that have happened where, you know, technologies have come out. And, uh, you know, I'm just excited at all the momentum that seems to be building around edge computing and building apps for that. And, and we're very excited because uh, come June 3rd, our platform is going to come out and allow anybody to be able to build and run apps on the cloud for the edge uh, using our global edge fabric, you know, which uh, I'd love to tell you more about. Wow, there's so many pieces I want to unpack with this because I, I want to have people understand what it takes to build edges let, let me or edge applications. Let me start from, so part of what you're building is actually a fabric that people can leverage, right? So this isn't sort of self-run software. There's, there's a, a, a hosted platform component that's right. Uh, that's right, Rob. It's actually a completely managed service. Okay. When we looked at the edge, we just see that it is intrinsically too complex because of its distribution, the topology, uh, and people find it hard to write cloud applications. Now you take that times a million to the power of a billion, and that's sort of the complexity of the edge in many ways. Yeah, I, that's true. Uh, I, so, so that means that when people are thinking about writing an application for the edge, because it's a, a platform service, you're taking away the infrastructure pieces, you're taking away a lot of the components that somebody who would be, say, designing you know, their own edge infrastructure has to worry about. That All that's taken care of. All that's taken care of. You as a developer, all you need to worry about is your application and the goals of your application, who you want to reach and where they are. So it sort of presents a very high level set of choices of locations, uh, and, uh, you know, the kinds of features and capabilities that you're interested in consuming to write your application. Everything underneath that about the infrastructure, about how things connect, about providing service level guarantees of what kind of latency your end, end users can expect, all of that is just a function of the platform. But I think the part where I get really the most excited is that you don't need to know anything about distributed applications, uh, distributed databases or computing. You don't need to know uh, Erlang or Akka or Go. You can be a JavaScript developer, you know, and you can come to our platform and write apps that will run concurrently 
you know, in 25 global locations without you needing to worry about any of the things that typically go wrong in these sorts of systems. Wow. Okay. So there's, there's huge components to think about with that. One is the actual way you're de delivering the code to your platform. And then how does the platform know where to run it uh, yeah. from that perspective? And then we have storage on, on another side. So, oh boy, uh, where do you want to start? What makes the most sense to explain? Maybe, from we'll a, just, a uh, maybe a place to start is to, you know, maybe talk about why the edge is different from the cloud uh, okay. because it is very different and, and you know that. So maybe there. That sounds fantastic. Love diving in on that one. Okay, so you know, from our perspective, and I think you know, different companies who are solving different parts of the stack problem will look at it slightly differently. But we tend to see the edge as really being defined by you know very complex distribution problems, data distribution problems. Stateless applications have been possible on the edge for a long time, and CDNs I think are the killer app for the stateless way of doing things at the edge, and that's been around for 18, 20 years now. The, the problems all start when you need to maintain state at the edge, especially if that state is shared by other participants in that network. If there are other locations who might be interested in parts of that state, then how do you get that state across in a way that you know, you're, you're, you're doing it in a meaningful amount of time? I mean, it's not taking a, a, a lot of latency to do it. And B, are you able to provide some guarantees that all the different participants are actually seeing the same state at any given point in time. So consistency is sort of the second part of this. So, um, so yeah. is there is so some of what you're describing, and we'll, we'll come back to this, is is cap theorem to me. Yes, um, which is consistency, availability, and partition tolerance, which is a, a big database concept. Yes, is there a use case that that you can use to help illustrate this? And so we're not we're not as abstract in in the thinking where you know people sort of could get their head around this type of data in multiple places where, where there's multiple participants, you know, collaborating around the data or sharing that data? Yeah, so I'll use one that I think is a very intense form of, uh, you know, state sharing, which is in gaming. So uh, I think we talked about this in a previous podcast. We've got a plugin of our platform that works with Unity, which is a gaming engine. And one of the things that we allow in Unity is for you to actually take uh, the state of the game, you know, at an object level of things that are in happening inside the game uh, and attach uh, data to it. So in, while you're playing the game, uh, you might be firing your gun, you might be, you know, shooting 80 rounds a, a minute or something like that. Every one of those events of a gunshot, et cetera, we essentially ingest that and store that. And, and, you know, so that's one example of what we can store, but we can store practically every sort of state event inside that game environment across thousands of players who might be playing. Why do you do that? Because you can essentially then be able to take that and mine that data and do some very intelligent things in real time. You might be able to dynamically change the gameplay. You might be able to create monetization uh, opportunities by seeing that a player is always struggling in this particular area of the map and they get killed by this level three ogre or something like that. And you can sort of, you know, Hunger Games style, drop something at them and, and they pay a, a couple of micro pennies and they get a power up that lets them get through that level. You get them to engage more in the game. And over time, you just sell them a lot more in a game session. And they get more out of the game session than they can if you don't have data that you can actually use in interesting ways. So if you take that, you know, uh, an edge location might be peering with several other edge locations to be able to share state in a way that the players who are all connected to those different locations all have a shared experience of what's happening inside the game. Any inconsistency 
in, in the session of one user to another user impairs that game state in a, in a pretty fundamental way. And so this ability to share that state with low latency, with consistency guarantees, you know, is, is super important in that particular use case. So and, does that mean, yeah. mean that your platform ends up having its own data models or its own data structures that are part of, of learning how to use the platform? No, actually, that and, and you bring up a really good uh, you know question because internally, yes, we have our own ways that we ultimately break everything down into, and we use something called CRDTs or conflict-free replicated data types as a way to model all of this data internally. But we expose it externally as just a set of database and stream functions. It's like using DynamoDB if you've been building a cloud app, or it's like using Kinesis or Kafka if you've been building sort of event-oriented apps. It looks and feels exactly like that, but what we do is we decompose all those down into much more uh, primitive objects where we deal with the concurrency and the consistency primitives in a way that we can do the state sharing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then, but does that end up with standard database APIs or is that something that Macrometa is built as a specialized, like you're, I'm assuming you're not just using the Dynamo um, APIs and, and taking advantage of libraries with that. There's got to be something. You know, no, so, we've built, so maybe a good place to start is just sort of explain what we've built. Yeah. So we, we call the, plat the platform the Global Edge Fabric. And the Global Edge Fabric is a combination of three sets of infrastructures, but they're tightly integrated and you access them all through one common API and one common way of querying across all of them. The first piece of that infrastructure is a massively distributed, and by distributed, I don't mean within a data center only, but across data centers, across hundreds of edge locations, basically, a geo-distributed database. And this database essentially allows us to place points of presence around the world. We've got 25 today as we go out on June 3rd. Our goal is to get to about 50 by the end of the year and maybe add another 100 next year. We'll be about 15 to 15 to 20 milliseconds away one way from the majority of human population and devices by the end of next year, so that you know we can sort of open up a whole new tier of real-time capabilities that are not possible with the cloud. So this wow. database uh, is really interesting in that it's a, it actually behaves like a modern NoSQL database. There are many flavors for NoSQL. So we've created a universal data model with interfaces for all the popular types of NoSQL that you do. So it, it looks and behaves like a key value store. So if you've been using Redis or Memcached, you know, we look like that. So you can basically use build an application that might be doing some simplistic storage using key value pairs, and you can use us as a key value storage at the edge. The difference being you can have multiple people have that shared stage across hundreds of physical locations. You can do inserts in one place and you can read them pretty much at the speed of the network in another place with consistency guarantees. Wow. Key value pairs are interesting, but if you want to build really sophisticated apps, you know that state needs to get richer and needs to get more structured. So we think document storage, JSON documents, is a great way to represent that. So the next interface we offer is a document database interface that looks and feels a lot like MongoDB. Um, and, you know, why stop there? Because ultimately the JSON representation allows you to do lots of interesting things like now have relationships between documents and essentially model them as graphs. And so we've also got a graph database interface that allows you to run graph queries like Neo4j, for example, or TigerGraph, one of those things. And so it's one data model. You query it through all these different interfaces 
and you can program it across all these different data types. So that's one set of capabilities. Now, the second thing that we think the edge is really driven by is real-time events. Things are happening in the real world, and you need to be able to do something with that information about that. So you've got sensors in IoT that might be collecting sensor information. You might have games where events are happening as players play. Maybe it's a first-person shooter. Somebody picked up an inventory item. Somebody opened up a particular part of the map by solving a puzzle. These are all events and messages. And so we built a stream and a stream processor for you to be able to write complex logic to process all these events in real time at the edge. So what you can do is you can essentially process events even before ingesting into the, them into the database. You simply define publishers and consumers. The publisher starts to stream events onto the uh, channel and the consumer, whoever is registered to listen to that, they start consuming these topics and they can fire off serverless functions to process each event. And that's sort of the third piece of what we do, which is that we've built a serverless function engine that allows you to express your logic on how to process events and how to interact with the database. So you can write your logic that ties all this together and run it with hyperlocality to the data because it schedules, orchestrates, and runs alongside our database nodes in all these 25 regions. Wow. So that's okay, sort of so, the core of Global Edge Fabric. Yeah, so there's there's two pieces in this that are super interesting to me. One is that, that you've been able to say, I have a data store where I have a global a global visibility, what I would what I would call federated visibility, yeah, and awareness of what those locations are. But then it sounds like you you actually have needed to expose if that you know the the events or some type of data so that that users actually or users of the database application developers can actually sort of interact with that behavior or or have you been able to sort of black box the the geo replication uh, behavior. So the, the geo-replication is mostly black boxed. You don't deal with that. So when you talk about geo-replication, right, there are sort of these all or nothing consistency models in the industry so far. The, the way of doing things historically has been that we started with databases that were always centralized and a single instance uh, usually was the database. You'd have one copy of Oracle sitting at the end of your pipe and you sent all your data to be stored in there. And every time it ingested something, it would open a transaction, write whatever you wanted writing, and then close the transaction. Until that transaction was closed, everyone else was queued up in front of it. So, you know, that was the way that we got consistency. We got atomic consistency by being able to queue everything in front of one instance and write to it. And the only way to do anything interesting with that was to scale it up by adding a bigger box if you needed more capacity. NoSQL came about and sort of challenged this idea by saying, maybe we should relax some of the consistency guarantees so that we can scale things out better, so that we don't have to scale up every time, we can scale across by adding more nodes in a data center. And in a data center, the network is very reliable, even though you know programmers love to talk about how flaky the network is, the truth is the data center network is pretty damn reliable, it's very low latency. And so the assumptions of distributed- Whether, whether it's reliable or not, we build things assuming it is, which, which isn't true in Edge, right? That's, that's where you go. It's not true in Edge, exactly. In Edge, it's a far different problem Oh, the scale of the problem is much worse. But in, you know, within the data center, you, you can essentially scale out because the network is reliable. And because the network is reliable and low latency, things that you use to coordinate how consensus is achieved, that you have the single version of truth across a set of nodes, they can all rely on some very, very well-known techniques like timestamping. And you can use things like NTP to coordinate the clocks of all the individual nodes. And you know that you know most of the clocks 
within a data center are more or less, you know, in sync. There could be a few milliseconds of drift, but nothing significant. Now, if you take that same architecture and try to stretch that over geo-replicated uh, edge locations, you know, where you have 25, 30 edge locations, first thing is your traffic is going to potentially cross multiple network operators. It's a very dynamic topology. So two packets never necessarily take the same route to get to, uh, you know, between two edge locations. And sometimes messages don't get delivered. So you need to deal with the fact that you've got very little control on message delivery. So an update seen at one edge location, how do you guarantee that it's actually seen by the other five locations that are interested in seeing that update? Mm -hmm. Second problem you have is NTP doesn't work on these long distances because the time slippage can be anywhere from nine to you know, 50, 70 milliseconds. And you might have a hundred or a thousand transactions that have happened concurrently across those 12, 15 locations in that, in that gap. So you can't order them. They all look like they came with the same timestamp. So you can't rely on, on, on clocks unless you're Google and you use atomic clocks, right? Um, <laughs> that's so, why they do things like that. That's right. That's, so that's sort of the second problem of this whole thing. And the third problem is this problem of what's called consensus, which is being able to agree that, uh, a, that the current version of the state of the current version of the state is X. And so there are different ways of achieving that. Uh, you know, distributed ledgers and blockchains try to do that one way. Uh, but historically, what we've done is use consensus algorithms and state machine replication to be able to do that. State machine replication is pretty, uh, you know, a heavy coordination. Lots of nodes need to talk to each other three or four times. Yeah, cons consensus yeah. is really expensive uh, from a network, the network perspective. Most people don't think don't think about how much you actually chatter you actually have to make sure a consensus algorithm is working correctly. Exactly. So you've got basically seven, seven or eight handshakes between just two participants before they can get into a yeah. state where they can accept a transaction. Now multiply that by you know, 25, 30 participants in that network who are no longer within one or two milliseconds of each other. There may right. be- and The latency, latency becomes very expensive from that perspective, right? So latency, latency makes those handshakes hard. And then unreliability, if I remember correctly, makes those handshakes really hard because you might be waiting on somebody to make consensus with you that doesn't isn't is no longer a participant correct so, yeah these are these are really significant distributed computing problems yeah so what we did was three things one we built an asynchronous we built a messaging layer of our own and this messaging layer is is one that we control completely across all these different network providers and it allows us to have guaranteed delivery semantics we know when that message a that went from a location in tokyo did reach all the peers that it was peering with and so we've got a way to very or in a, in a, a guarantee the ordering of transactions across the network. That's one big thing that we do with the, with the way we've built our messaging. Second thing that we did was we don't rely on any form of timekeeping that involves physical clocks. We use logical clocks and techniques called what are called vector clocks, basically, as a way of causally ordering events. So we, in a, in a very simplistic fashion, we look at events and the order in which they happen from the observer standpoint and map that into a data structure called a vector clock and use that as a way to track what happened after what across all these different networks, uh, sorry, across all these different participants in the network. So that gives us causal timekeeping, not uh, physical timekeeping. There is no timestamp that says something happened at this minute and this second. Instead, it, it says something happened, but the previous thing that we saw that happened before this was this particular event. So you use events as a way to do that. That technique is actually pretty well known uh, and it's, it's well understood. 
our unique combination uh, contribution over here was the fact that we brought in this idea of what's called CRDTs or conflict-free replicated data types as a way to replicate data across all these uh, locations in a way that you don't need coordination between the locations, i.e. you don't need this consensus mechanism and the overhead that comes with that. Each of our edge locations basically is a peer to the other edge locations. It accepts changes to its uh, database. It applies those changes. And then the change package, whatever those transformations were, we essentially model them as a set of CRDTs and, and, and we ship them off to all the other edge locations that are peering. Each edge location applies that transformation and mathematically, deterministically always ends up in the same state as all the other edge locations, all without needing to exchange any further information. Now, you know, the purists will say, well, what about what are called conflicts? What if I make the same change to the same object in two different places at the same time? You can solve that. We do, we solve that. We give you consistency guarantees. And so the way we solve that is that, A, two objects, uh, two writers can actually modify the same object at the same time. And we allow you to actually merge the changes between the, uh, between the two locations. So in a very simple example, say you've got a book object, it's got a title and an author, somebody modified title in location A, somebody modified uh, author in uh, location B. Our solution essentially merges those two. It's kind of like Google Docs if you want to think about it. It allows two okay. or three people to write at the same time. And then, and then you just deal with conflict and you only deal with resolution if there's a conflict in those, in those changes? The only time you actually get a conflict with us is when there are two operations of the same type that happen to the same field. So the granularity of the surface in which conflicts can happen is very, very small compared to traditional eventually consistent databases like uh, you know, Mongo or Cassandra or one of those places. There, the whole object has to be replaced. If you modified the author, I modified the title, one of our changes will be accepted, not, you know, not, not this way of combining both. Right. Now, that makes sense. That, the, that's the almost need for atomic consistency or you know what's called the double spend problem where for example bank balances you can do things like merging on them so we provide something called a single point of truth which is just for those fields that need very strong consistency aka uh, asset consistency we have a way of transparently centralizing just those fields in one data center across two uh, availability zones with you know with, with fault tolerance so that for those fields, you have the kind of atomic guarantees that you would get from a traditional SQL database. But from a programmer standpoint, you don't deal with that differently. It's a checkbox in the GUI. It's an API call for you to define that. And the behavior then adapts to that consistency model for you just for those fields. So, so you, can, you can define in your data different aspects of how you want to deal with the, the temporal synchronization aspect. Correct. That's interesting. So, and, and to me, right, when I'm thinking about RESTful APIs, what you're describing is, is almost the difference between a put and a patch for people who are used to that nomenclature, mm -hmm. where with a patch, you can make very granular changes to an object, where with a put, you're really replacing the whole object, although there's, there's ways to work around those, those changes. But it's that, that type of semantic differencing. And so when, when you're building this edge database, by providing that as the fundamental data structure, Basically, everything you build on top of it becomes um, geo-capable, correct? Distributed capable. That's right. That seems like a generally useful thing. It's it, it's a it's a you know a, a broad use database from that perspective, not just not just part of your platform. No, it's 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 a it's it's really meant for you to be able to take existing applications and then maybe surgically move things that benefit from being at the edge over there. And I'm a big proponent of this here and now. 
let's solve problems that, I, that customers have here and now. Let's not wait for flying cars because they're going to have obvious concurrency problems. Uh, concurrency problems. So, you know, in web applications today, in, in things like e-commerce, travel and booking, there is a big benefit in being able to bring a lot of that kind of data to the edge, keep it at the edge, and be able to service customers 15 to 20 milliseconds away so that you can compose a page dynamically without going to origin in, in 30 milliseconds flat. Uh, so, so that you so can run... Sorry? How does the platform know to run an application in a geo? I mean, it's what you're describing is something sort of, you know, the internet obfuscates. It's, you know, you're saying, hey, I have data that's local, so it's within a certain light speed distance. That means I'm going to have to run code um, within that, you know, in that, in that environment so it can access that data and distribute it to the user. What, is, what makes um, an interaction geo-specific for you? So, so it's, it's to an extent statically defined. When you provision what we call a geofabric within, within our platform for your application, you pick the locations of interest. So you essentially use our GUI to literally click on different uh, data centers that we have presence in, and it collects all of them and turns them into a geofabric for you. So it starts with a static definition today. And okay. in our subsequent release, releases uh, between now and the end of the year, we're going to add dynamic tiering where you can have a set of locations that are on standby where you might have some traffic or you might not. But why pay for it if you don't have traffic? It's only when you get hit with traffic in those locations that we'll start a tier and bring some of that data there You know, when, when a certain threshold of activity uh, happens. Until that threshold okay. is reached, you still get redirected to the next closest location, which is fully populated. But over time, we can sort of uh, you know, dynamically shift uh, some of the data that is being frequently requested to that edge location. So, I mean, but does that mean that if I'm going to use an application that's geo-aware, am I going to the austin.racken.com you know, no. site? Or is there... There's latency routing in front of all of this. So every incoming request, we, we look it up and redirect you to the closest data center, either by geography or by latency, and you get to pick and choose when you deploy. Uh, we do it by geography if you're sensitive to data sovereignty issues. We do it by latency if you're not. So depending on the type of application you've built, if it's a gaming application and you're, you know, you're doing in-game in state data, there's really not a lot of sovereignty type issues. But if you're collecting end-user data and there is a mandate that that sort of data needs to stay within a particular geography or something like that, then you use our geography-based routing in front of it. Then you don't deal with any of this. You, you know, we, we use, uh, 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 you know, we put in front of your, your application all of this infrastructure that automatically uh, routes you to the closest locations based on business rules that you need to define. Wow. So, so this to me is is one of those another important piece besides the data storage is actually being able to say we're going to build build a framework so that when somebody's interacting with an application, perfectly normal interaction. There's you know, and and people people should be aware of this if they're not right. Anytime you interact with anything, you're 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 sending a lot of data. Um, about where you are and where you're coming from and your IP address and that you can you can determine a lot of information from any web interaction. But what you're saying is that you, you built some hooks that allow the developers of the application to then, you know, sort of expose that, that part of the platform is to actually have a geosensitive application stack or at least geosensitivity. That a fair? Right. So if you look at the workflow, you typically, when you're designing the schema of your data model, right, you're, you're going to define your fields, et cetera. 
we allow you at that point to actually mark sensitive fields and pin them based on rules. You can pin it physically to a data center. You can pin it to a particular region and say, I only allow this data to be a shared state within these regions. So you get very granular control all the way from the field to the table uh, to a database. You can define it in any of those three levels, basically. So, it, 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 so we essentially treat location as just another attribute of the data. It's not a physical thing, but the location attribute allows us to pin specific things in specific locations and uh, protect how it's egressed and ingressed out of that area uh, by applying dynamic transformation to it. Because we've got a streaming technology, you know, if you access a piece of PII or personal information that should be masked, it automatically gets masked if you access it outside the region, for example. Interesting. And then, and then so the, those, the, those interactions with the, the app developer site are then going to be moved into the correct location and pinned into the correct geo based on data that you've been able to collect about that interaction. Correct, yes. And yeah. so, so do they like, but would you start at, you know, a, a centralized site and then make those decisions or can we, you know, basically move people immediately into the geos? If it's a greenfield application, it starts by immediately moving people into the geo. So you say you're building a brand new app um, and there are parts of your data model that are sensitive to geography. That's not a problem that, you know, when you start building that model, automatically you can define those rules and everything starts with the first, you know, insert or update in the database with those location rules. If you're taking a brownfield application, uh, there you start with a centralized model and over time you populate all these individual silos, basically. There, my, my head is running from in, in traditional engineering because I'm trying to think through what it looks like to actually deliver an application. I know Steven's thinking timing on us. I, but I, I, so, but can you help explain, and maybe this is the right thing to sort of wrap up on what, what it would look like if I was going to bring, you know, an application to you and say, I want to run this, you know, in a geo distributed area. Does, is that code? You know, what is, what does my thought process look like to bring an application onto your platform? Yeah. So I'll maybe give you an example of an actual customer who's, who's worked on this problem. This is an e-commerce customer, and they really wanted to bring certain types of search and filtering um, and uh, dynamic content onto our platform instead of generating it at the origin and then trying to cache it and, and expire it using their CDN provider. So over there, there's still a master copy on, on their enterprise database. We end up acting as a shadow copy in, in, at the edge, right? Even though we're a full-blown database, we're not a cache because you're actually you know, querying us you're running SQL type queries on top of us. We're able to do things like joins. You're even able to mutate or change data at our end, and we can synchronize that back in your database. So what ends up happening in that sort of a journey, Rob, is that the customer essentially says, I'm interested in moving these functions, and attached to that set of functions are, th are these data uh, tables and, and fields and columns that, that, that essentially make up that data model. So we essentially end up uh, you know, creating a copy of that inside our database, keeping them at these edge locations, and then allowing the edge to be the primary, uh, you know, the, the, the primary tier for you to query. So it's, if, you, if you're familiar with how memcached is used, right? Uh, in a memcached, you essentially check memcached if it has a copy of an object. If it doesn't, then you fetch it from the database, put it in memcached, so that subsequently you can always fetch it from there. So if you're doing an update, you always do two updates. You do one update to the copy in memcached, and then you do another update to the primary database. 
So you can sort of use us in, in that fashion in front of an existing application. And we allow you to keep all the hot data, mutating data, queryable data at the edge. You're never going to the origin in those, in those models. And you're only changing those portions of your application and code that deal with interaction, that deal with search, filtering, and database queries. You're leaving the rest of the stack alone. So the idea is incrementalism. Let's be incremental in asking our customers to make small changes rather than asking them to write a whole new thing in a whole new way just to take advantage of the edge. So can we insert ourselves in a transparent way, the way CDNs do in front of static content, but we're doing it in front of dynamic apps and content and, and then by allowing them to just use our APIs for data of interest to be kept at the edge and then over time, maybe move more and more data onto that itself. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, one of the, the things that, you know, with edge infrastructure already, CDN is is the clear way we've been doing edge so far, but it's very static. Yes. <laughs> Uh, in the sense that it's really focused on on data and files and, and you know things that are that are can be easily cached and, and identified as cached. And what you've described is a much more dynamic type of data interaction that you know that sort of says, all right, I, I have to put all this data there. I can pre-warm it, I can get it, but you know, once it's there, I, I want to interact with it. I want to have I want it to have some, you know, um, highly interactive experience for my users that, that doesn't rely on going all the way back to my main data center in a high latency way and then waiting for caches to propagate or I'm no longer using the cache. So I've lost all the CDN benefits as soon as I've gone interactive. Yes. Uh, you've, you've been able to say, this is a behavior I'm, I'm comfortable with, CDN, um, and then say, but this is how the edge should, should change that behavior. And I know there's a lot more to it than that. I, I don't want to trivialize how we're building it, but at the same time, I really like your approach of saying, you know, these are metric, these are things you understand that you're already doing. Let's figure out how to make, you know, a much better, a much richer experience out of that. Yeah. And maybe one last point to just round this off, which is if you think about how most modern mobile apps are being built and web apps are build, being built, they're built, being built around richer client-side architectures like single-page applications, SPAs, or you know, progressive web apps, PWAs. And the beauty of this model is that you know, there is no server-side rendering of the page anymore. Your, your code and your HTML, it's cached on a CDN. It loads instantly on your device, your browser, or your mobile phone. And then what does it do? It simply makes REST or GraphQL calls to query the database and pull data in so that you know, it, it, it presents data inside the user interface. So the role of the backend has changed a lot in these architectures. You know, the old architectures had a big sprawly backend with a lot of web servers because you had a server side generate the damn page on PHP or something like that. New architectures are all about leveraging the power of modern mobile phones, et cetera. So we sit really well in that model because your database is now as close as the CDN is that's loading your static assets, all your dynamic content is now coming from us. Yeah. So I thought that would be a good way to sort of give a picture to people who are thinking, how does this work in the context of a mobile app or something like that? So Chetan, I'm going to jump in and I actually have one or two more questions before we wrap up. I'm breaking okay. my own rule going over a half hour, but this is really good content. So um, we're excited to see this and it sure is different than our podcast last year when you couldn't tell us what you were doing. Um, we were at GDC, I think a month or two ago, we met and talked a little about that you had put APIs into Unity. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you're trying to do with gaming uh, and the edge and how your application can really make a difference for gamers, at least gaming developers? Yeah, so, you know, I think game developers have always struggled with the fact that 
database has always gone in the way of the gaming experience. So if you've played games, you know that largely if uh, you, you, they, they only persist your scores and your state at the end of the session. Either you're quitting the game or you finish some sort of a level or you've hit a certain checkpoint and that's when they write your game state down into disk. And that's not changed, by the way. Uh, and a lot of the focus in gaming has always been on the user experience, on graphics, and you know all the, all the cool stuff that you know GPUs run. So the data side has really lagged. And now we've come to the point where the data is really the most valuable asset what's inside a game because you can look at gamer behavior, you can essentially dynamically modify the game, and you've got some amazing companies like Improbable that have built scale-out platforms for you to build massively multiplayer games. We're all about allowing you to take the game state and store that in our database and use our streaming technology and our serverless functions for you to analyze that game state and bring new levels of interactivity uh, and, 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 dynamics, and, and dynamic behavior to those games uh, you know, based on processing that data. So our database is really meant for allowing you to create new kinds of functionality with new games that you couldn't do before. Yeah, we do that through a Unity plugin that's available. Um, and uh, you simply, you can use us two ways. You can use our uh, client SDK or you can just call our REST API or our GraphQL API. One of the things that our database does is it automatically generates GraphQL for everything that you put inside the database. So once you model your collections or tables and you model queries, it automatically generates GraphQL for you. So you don't need to do any backend glue code to expose the database as a set of functions externally. It's completely serverless. So once you've defined it, you simply call the GraphQL from within a game or from a mobile app and it gives you, you know, the result of a very complex query that might be joining across 15, 16 tables. You might be doing an analytics function or using a graph, for example, to look at a history of things that the player might have done and get to a particular uh, type of behavior that you're interested in. We can do a lot of those kinds of evaluations in milliseconds that, that you, you know, haven't been able to do before. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for a, a little more insight. You know, we, uh, we're we doing more gaming stuff. And uh, by the time this podcast is out, people have already heard the podcast we did with Black Nut. So uh, every time we talk about Edge, gaming pops up somewhere. So we're trying to keep the audience uh, updated on all that activity. Well, um, if we've come to the end of our podcast. I want to thank you again for joining us. Uh, congratulate you on the uh, release and launch of your technology. Certainly encourage all our listeners to go over and take a look at it. Uh, where should they go if they want to get their hands on the code or the next steps? Yeah, thanks, uh, Stephen. So go to www.macrometa.co. That's M-A-C-R-O-M-E-T-A dot C-O. And, you know, right up on top of the page come June 3rd is going to be uh, the ability to sign up for a free account. It's a free tier. You can build and run apps across five locations as much as you want. Learn how to use the product. We've also got live labs that actually are guided tutorials where you can run, uh, write real code and run it all within a sandbox uh, without leaving your browser. Um, and come June 15th, uh, July 15th, we should have our premium tiers up that offer more regions, more functionality. Uh, and more integration with partners. Uh, we're very excited about some of those partnerships that we're going to bring to bear in the July timeframe. Well, again, congratulations. This is uh, great news for the company. We're happy to uh, help promote and try to find more people. Take a look. We encourage our listeners that are developers to go over and, and look at their technology. Uh, really great. So, Rob and uh, Chathan, thanks again for joining us and, and look forward to hopefully not another year. We'll try to bring you on before a year passes. Time moved fast on us and uh, bring I, you I in think for our, sure. Our head, 
I think our heads would explode, Stephen. Every time we go deeper down the rabbit hole, this was really deep tech, and I appreciate uh, that conversation. So thank you for that. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Stephen. It's always a pleasure for me to uh, speak with you guys. I love your podcast. I think it's one of the it's, – it's a diamond of a podcast. So thanks for doing what you guys do, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here.